This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing about hate crimes. The Democrats invited to speak experts on hate crimes. The Republicans, in inviting Candace Owens to speak, committed one. Well, that might be too far. Maybe not a hate crime, but a pretty horrible moral transgression. A lot of moral philosophers would argue that if you have a task before you of trying to understand and stop hate crimes, and instead you distract yourself with a different, irrelevant task, well, I don't know if it's a hate crime, but it's pretty bad. And that's what happened. Candace Owens is a young, attractive black mouthpiece for the dumbest ideas in conservatism today. It is not hard to memorize these narrow sets of talking points. She seems to have done so. She's pretty glib. She's verbally adroit. And like I said, she is attractive and African-American. So Republicans believe they have in her a walking, talking, breathing, tweeting way to advance their greatest policy goal, owning the libs. Owens was accurately described in the hearings as conservative. The reason she was described that way is because she frequently identifies herself as conservative because she speaks at conservative conferences with conservatives before people who proudly call themselves conservative. So in the hearing yesterday, under friendly questioning by Representative Ken Buck of Colorado, this came up. Do you consider yourself a conservative? I am a conservative, yes. Okay. Aha! But the official committee documents had also described her as a conservative. They were, by the way, quoting from her own bio. And that, according to Republican Andy Biggs from Arizona, that was the real hate crime. This is the first time I've ever seen that, other than the stating what they represent or the group that they are from. This is seemingly, seemingly anyway, going beyond the bounds of what is the norm. That is an indication to me of how easy it is to demonstrate animus. A heart-rending account of all the hate speech that Candace Owens had to face ensued. This was juxtaposed with the 50 dead in New Zealand from a different kind of hate crime, the 11 dead in Pittsburgh. I mean, you could argue that those were perhaps equally shocking versions of hate crimes. Most of the Democrats chose not to avail themselves of Ms. Owens' expertise, and instead they relied on some other witnesses, like the vice president of the Anti-Defamation League, the president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, who used to work in the Justice Department, and executives at Google and Facebook, who could talk about their platforms and what their platforms could do to counter white supremacist groups. But one Democrat who did confront Owens played for her her own words. So this was a tape of Owens speaking in England, and she was answering a question about populism and nationalism. Yeah, I agree. I, I actually don't have any problems at all with the word nationalism. I think that it gets, uh, the definition gets poisoned um, by elitists that actually want globalism. Globalism is what I, what I don't want. So when you think about whenever we say nationalism, the first thing people think about, in, at least in America, is Hitler. 
you know, he was a national socialist, but if Hitler just wanted to make Germany great and have things run well, okay, fine. The problem is, is that he wanted, he had dreams outside of Germany. He wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German, everybody to be speaking German, everybody to look. And that is where Representative Ted Lou's clip ended. He held up a phone. He played it. I actually played you the version right from the YouTube clip so you wouldn't have to listen to Ted Lou's cell phone as it was mic'd into the committee. But yeah, that's what she said. She talked for quite a while. Candace Owens, when given a chance to respond to Ted Lieu playing this kind of Hitler excusing clip, uh, Candace Owens said this. Yes, um, I think it's pretty apparent that uh, Mr. Lieu believes that black people are stupid and will not uh, pursue the full clip in its entirety. And then she went online and her followers were complaining that... Ted Lieu didn't even play the question that was asked. Well, I'm not stupid. I do know how to search for a clip on YouTube. And so the question was, I will spare you. It was a stumbling, muttering question. But the question was... Yeah, so um, in the current age, I feel like the uh, political debate stems around nationalism and globalism, which, however, they're weaponized within the media. I feel especially in Europe and alike in America, these movements are being energized. Do you feel the momentum will last? Uh, in regards to the EU, uh, Guy Verhofstadt referred to his base of the movement as the summer of populism, in, in quotation marks. But two years down the line, these governments are realizing there's a clear trajectory in the opposite, like the status, against the status quo. And then the guy actually gets to the question. How do you feel like the, the long-term like, prognosis is for these particular movements? Let's pick up Owen's answer from her second reference to Hitler. As you know, it was because you heard the question. It wasn't raised by the questioner. She just decided to talk about Hitler. So I will now play the entire answer, not just the lying Ted Lou's truncated version. Here we go. Sorry about this, but here we go. The problem is, is that he wanted, he had dreams outside of Germany. He wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German, everybody to be speaking German, everybody to look a different way. That's not, to me, that's not nationalism. Um, so in thinking about how we could go bad down the line, I don't really... I don't really have an issue with nationalism. I really don't. I think that it's okay. It's important to retain your, your country's identity and to make sure um, that what's happening here, which I think is incredibly worrisome in terms of the just the, the decrease in the birth rate that we're seeing um, in the UK, is what you kind of want to avoid. So I'm not, I don't have anything problem. I have no problems with nationalism. It's globalism that I try to avoid. Hope that clears it up to Candace Owens' satisfaction. She would like you to know that that's the full statement in which she said Hitler wasn't bad because of the nationalism. Here's a counterpoint. It's actually the fourth point of the Nazis' 25 points, now the first three of which were expressions of nationalism, the right of German unification, the need for colonies, and then point number four of the original Nazi parties, 25 points, only Germans may be citizens of Germany, only those of the German races may be members of the nation, their religion does not matter, no Jew may be a citizen. So in summary, Hitler's nationalism, perverse, extreme, and hateful, was precisely the animating force that killed six million Jews and millions more Roma, Catholic priests, insane people, homosexuals. It was precisely the nationalism run amok that killed these people. It is precisely the nationalism run amok that you, Candace Owens, are championing in that clip, explaining that it was only when Hitler crossed into Poland or maybe the Sudetenland that he became worrisome. It is precisely an angry, 
ahistoric, dangerous nationalism that Candace Owens makes her name on and money on. And it is a whitewashing of this dangerous nationalism that was the goal of your backers on the committee who laughingly and horribly sat you as an expert on hate crimes. Do you want to hear how gleeful one of these nationalist enablers was? Again, here's Representative Ken Buck. I, I think you've caused my friends on the left to, to go to their safe spaces, and I'd love to ex, uh, explore with you a little bit of the reason for that. Ha, ha, ha! Safe spaces! Like the safe space that was the closet inside the Tree of Life synagogue that Barry Werber hid in to avoid getting shot by a white supremacist. By the way, that same closet wasn't so safe a space for 87-year-old Melvin Wax, who was killed, actual hate crime, And maybe we should actually be investigating hate crimes, not setting up smoke screens in the form of Candace Owens for her prized ability to look at the liberals and what is that word not at all associated with hate crimes? Trigger them. On the show today, I spiel about our president. He's not that good at his job. But first, the fabulously inventive podcast, Everything is Alive, is in its second season. We're joined once more by its host and creator, Ian Chillog, who on the show interviews baseball caps, lamp posts, and towels. Also joining us is Chioki Ianson, a professor of philosophy at Virginia Commonwealth by Day and a grain of salt by podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Everything is Alive is, well, I I assume it's the sequel to Eat, Pray, Love or some sort of philosophy endorsed by Deepak Chopra. But in fact, what Everything is Alive is, is a way of life and a way of looking at the universe, but more specifically, a podcast that I love that is done by my friend Ian Chillog. It's from the Radiotopia universe of podcasts. And the basic premise is that Ian, as the interviewer, who is, I think, a human, we could get into this, interviews things like lampposts and elevators and cans of cola and grains of sand. Ian is here to talk about season two, and soon we will be joined by, I believe, the smallest ever interviewee from Everything is Alive. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hey, good. Good to be here. How'd season one go? It was great. Yeah, it was a real surprise that uh, people listen to it. (laughs) But yeah, I think we spanned a good, diverse collection of objects from things sat on to things eaten to things rubbed against oneself. (laughs) And sometimes all three. So when you left, wait, wait, don't tell me, where you were a producer for many years, did you say to yourself, you know, this was a good, fun show, but what I'm yearning to do and what is undercovered, the undercovered communities, I mean, we've interviewed Tom Hanks and The Rock and Roxanne Roberts, but not never sand and soda. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like, I, so I still work on Wait, Wait a yeah. little bit. 
And occasionally I will, like this week, we were doing this story about how this biotech engineer figured out how to make sweat mm-hmm. into clothing. Yeah. Did you see this? Uh, no, but I, I, I heard about it. So, yeah. So she figured on, on out. the news of the weird site yeah. that I subscribed to. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is just a direct line into Wait, Wait, Don't Tell <laughs> well, Me. Well, that's how I found out about it. <laughs> yeah. But so I was writing about it, and I was writing this joke, which was about how when you sweat into your T-shirt made of sweat, it must be a lovely reunion, <laughs> and, you know, and, and your shirt must be so happy. And I realized, like, no, no, like, the everything is alive brain has infected <laughs> the weight, weight brain. I do think that that we are never, like, as as confident as a person you might be, you're never fully unselfconscious around another person. Right. The way you would be around a chair. Right. Do you, I mean, do you feel sorry for them? No, not at all. They seem like really stupid fish. I guess you've been on a beach and you've, you've been in the ocean, so you have uh, enough experience to know there there is more than the aquarium. But, you know, maybe they don't. Yeah, I mean, I think that if there's one difference between them and I... Sorry, I'm just ha- I'm having trouble with the pronouns. You know, we- we're doing this interview, and I'm a grain of sand. Yeah, but that's not really that's not really the way that I would think of myself. I think normally I would just say we are sand. Okay. Um. So so you see that there's the the kind of mass noun thing happening. And it's weird to talk to you because you don't have a mass noun thing or you don't seem to have a mass noun arrangement. So you say of yourself that you're a a person, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say I am I am a person. So like why aren't you a grain of person? Like uh why do I not consider myself as like a a fraction of all of humanity? Yeah. Like that that makes more sense. Yeah. All right, well, I want to bring in the uh, guy who played the grain of sand, and I want to talk to him about how he was approached and how he approached his role. Chioki Ianson is uh, that guy, and you might recognize the voice. Hello, Chioki, how are you? Yo, yo, what it do? <laughs> well, wh- if I say you might recognize the voice, he never says that. What he usually oh, yeah. says, what I'm always hearing him say is something about the Catherine T. and Julia P., Rogers Foundation yeah. or something. Could you say just Look, the word I, just I got peaceful to and tell the people. I got to tell the people about those foundations. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. You, you will not know like who's out there giving large sums of money to support public radio. So Chioki is the underwriting funder credit reader guy or the announcer. Can we say you're the announcer for NPR? Uh, yeah, that, that whole thing is actually my official title. <laughs> underwriting funder credit reader guy. That's yeah. what they call me in the paperwork. That's right. He's the only one with a business card that actually actually has an extension pack. How'd you get that gig? Because, by the way, you're great at it. You sound great. But how'd you get it? 
through the weirdest, most, you know, serendipitous happenstance. Um, I was up at NPR doing kind of a workshop, this thing called the Story Lab. It was Mm -hmm. the first one ever. They sent me and my podcast partners up in there. They introduced us to, like, this, like, small, like, nerdy cat who was supposed to be our mentor. His name was uh, Ian. And, (laughs) And the day that we gave our presentation... In the crowd were the people who run the underwriting stuff. And one, you know, visionary cat who was willing to give a kid a break, his name was Izzy, he was like, all right, kid, take my card. I might need you to do an audition. And I was like, all right, whatever. I don't know what exactly is going on, but I'm, I'm down for whatever. And so, yeah. Can I say I was there? I saw Izzy Smith discover Chioki. Wow. And it was not. Seeing his face when Chioki started talking was not unlike the moment when Bradley Cooper first sings Lady Gaga, <laughs> sees Lady Gaga sing in A Star Is Born. Is, is he wet himself? <laughs> <laughs> so Chioki, how'd you get approached to be the grain of sand and uh, what was the pitch and what was your reaction? Okay, so a, a long time ago, I think back even in that during that first workshop, Ian was telling me about the idea And I was like, oh, snap, like, that's pretty cool. And I could see it, you know, being related to this. uh, this, There's a particular kind of weird branch of philosophy called object-oriented ontology that purports to perform the work of phenomenology from the perspective of objects or whatever. Um, You don't have to tell me that. No, yeah, no, I, yeah, look, I know I know you guys know about it. I'm just saying it for the audience. <laughs> and he can't say yeah. digital. <laughs> yeah, Ch- Chioki was like, oh, the, the idea you just, you thought you had. Yeah, people have been thinking about that intensely for 10 years. <laughs> it's not new. <laughs> okay, but then Ian said, yes, but the idea I had is that plus podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so it's it, so after a while, eventually, Ian was like, "Hey, yo, let's go on and then pick." He gave me like I think three options of like objects that I could be, and the one that made the most sense to me, because I am a philosopher type person, mm-hmm. was the grain of, the grain of sand, and that which allowed us to think through, allowed me to do that weird uh, like thing that I think the show does, which is uh, like puts empathy into reflection in a way that is weirdly not possible whenever you're just thinking about other people. Yeah. And so this is why the the show is so dope. Anyway, so so then I was like, yeah, the grain of sand is going to help is going to be the the perspective that allows me to talk about my philosophy stuff that I like to smuggle into, you know, public life and force on people whenever they give me a chance. So then you began thinking about grain of sand and the thoughts that you were having reminded you of previous either philosophers talking about things or you're thinking about things in what way? Like, Chioki, when you said, okay, now I'm a grain of sand, did you say to yourself, oh, this reminds me of, I don't know, the collective unconscious. This reminds me of what? Yeah. Yeah. So in particular, for me, it reminded me of a, a German philosopher named Heidegger. And because, you know, a grain of sand is a thing that it, it endures for a very long period of time. It starts off as a, as a boulder. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a process of erosion. And so right. a grain of sand is mad old. And that got me to thinking about temporality of the way that, you know, beings experience time, which made me think of Heidegger's work being in time, which also made me think of the phenomenon of boredom. And there's this thing in the his uh, lectures on metaphysics where Heidegger talks about boredom and like what 
what the the structure of boredom is and and I was like, "Oh yeah, but this isn't a thing that an object that was functionally mortal would even have. Like it wouldn't be capable of boredom." Anyway, so I so I spent some time reading reading that dead German and that's how I prepared for the the <laughs> the interview. And and did you lay this on Ian as such? I mean, I don't think that I I went straight out with it. I I I hollered at some philosopher homies of mine about it and they were like, "Yeah, that seems that yeah, seems tight. You got it right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Heidegger is the right answer. <laughs> I thought for a second you were going to say can't, which is obviously a pregnancy test. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, but but a pregnancy test kind of is Kantian, though, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, <laughs> of course it is. This is this is a fun. You get enough philosophers in a room and you give them inanimate objects, and I bet they could convince themselves that there is a connection to every one of them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The intensity of that conversation would only be matched by like the eye rolling of everybody else in the room. <laughs> yeah, like um, Descartes, he would be dog food. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a, a brain in a vet, just like some dog food in a in a in a bowl. Oh, I was yeah. thinking. I think therefore I am. Um, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. And tell me no, the rule. No, tell me the rule of uh, of the show, Ian, that you articulated before <laughs> and about puns. Well, I mean, my rule, my general. I can't remember what I said before, but my general rule about puns is you can only use them if they're offensive. <laughs> <laughs> So that's great how you got into the mindset of the grain of sand. But if I were to listen in on your planning session, are you mostly going for that would be a rich area of comedy? That could be fun. Or are you going for, oh, that is who this character is? It's not comedy. Most of what it is, is what about being the thing you are? What about your thingness? What would that do to your personality? Mm. So like, what about being a grain of sand how would you be formed personality-wise from that? Would you be insecure because you are tiny in the face of big things? Would you, as, you know, the place Chioki took it, would you think of yourself as a collective with all the other grains of sand in the world? And so just, like, thinking about what the connection between personality and the uh, specific conditions of the object are. That's, that's most of what that conversation is. And is that Heidegger or is there some other philosophy or philosopher that would sign off to that? That the reason we have the, I don't know, maybe it's psychiatry, but the reason we have not just the philosophies, but the the world outlook and the personalities that we do is because of, it's inextricable from our circumstance. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of cats out there that would that would do that. Anybody that studies the self, right? Because the there's a fundamental kind of interrelatedness to selves. Um, and even though we, you know, like Americans or Westerners or whatever you want to call it, have a, a strong emphasis on individuality, I think that most other cats and most philosophers know that that's largely mythological and that individuality is just a particular way that groups express themselves. So you could find like a good chunk of, of cats that think this way. So where does the role of dissent in the world of the sand or the or the world of philosophy? How much should we value dissent and the uh, the benefit of dissent f- from the perspective of sand or from the perspective of philosophers testing our th- theories and our thoughts? Right. I mean, I think that you know the point of dissent is to remedy bad ideas. Right. The point mm-hmm. of dissent isn't to like be antagonistic in and of itself for its own reasons, right? It's because things are broken 
they need to be fixed and people are not moving or reacting fast enough. And, and so this is why the dissent is important. Right. But it's I would say that it's its use is, uh, you know, we, we use it because of its effects and not because it in itself is great. So what would what would be the sand equivalent of that? When when does sand or grains of sand uh, exhibit dissent? Well, the thing about a grain of sand is that it's all of its existence is, you know, observation and reflection. And so it, it only has what it is, what it thinks about. And its thoughts are reflect its understanding of the world. And so it's perfectly possible to be sitting uh, to have like the sand to have particular grains of sand have different kinds of reflections and share those reflections. But I don't know that in because there are no there's no actionable framework with regard to being a grain of sand because it doesn't move. Um, then there aren't really any large political consequences to the opinion that any particular grain of sand might have. Yeah, that that is a good point. Ian, did you think it might have this effect, this dreamy, bigger philosophical effect? Did you hope? Uh, I want it. Well, uh, it's no. I, I mean, yes. I wanted it to not just be a joke. Yeah. You know, like I wanted the things to be thinking and reacting to the world in a real way beyond just the slapstick of it. It's people have that's landed better than I expected. Oh, the people find it more than funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was my hope, but I didn't know if that we'd be able to pull that off or not. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a type of thing you'd like to get into more? Underrepresented? If you have a list of 80, you probably have all types of things. Yeah. I mean, one thing I haven't, there's a, there's an episode I'm thinking about right now about doing the wheel. Yeah. I want to do the first wheel. Yeah. Um, who is still around somewhere as a stone. I've never done anything that significant, you know? Yeah. That, that um, but I think there's something interesting about that wheel having witnessed all of time. Dude, you could get all political and do a wall. The, I have thought about it. Yeah. I've, th- I've thought a lot about doing like things. Fundraiser episode. For, <laughs> for DACA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the original idea was I was going to do quick turnaround episodes about things in the news. Like when Kellyanne Conway says that they can listen to you through your microwave, talking to a microwave about that. But the reaction to the show was so much about how it was an escape from reality. Right. And I think that that's real, and I don't – if that is how it is valuable, valuable to people, I don't want to take that away by talking about our world. Wow. You know? Ian Chilag is the producer and host of Everything is Alive. Dr. Chioki Ianson was the grain of sand. You know, he has some other credits too, but he was the greatest sand. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yo, this is fun. And now the spiel. You may have noticed we got a bad president, but the best thing about our bad president isn't that he's not bad. Oh, as previously stated, he's bad. The best thing about our bad president is that he's actually bad at being president. Like there was this statement from yesterday. Obama separated the children, by the way. Just, just so you understand. President Obama separated the children. Those cages that were shown, I think they were very inappropriate. They were built by President Obama's administration, not by Trump. President Obama had child separation. Take a look. The press knows it. You know it. We all know it. I didn't have, I'm the one that stopped it. President Obama had child separation. Now, I'll tell you something. Once you don't have it, 
That's why you see many more people coming. They're coming like it's a picnic, because let's go to Disneyland. President Obama separated children. They had child separation. I was the one that changed it. Okay, thank you very much. This is a lie. It is what is known in propaganda circles as the big lie. You say it so much and so often about a thing that's so opposite of the truth that people believe it. They shouldn't. Because the truth is that during the Obama era, which was the same as the Bush era, children were only separated if they were being trafficked or if the claim of parentage was actually false or if the parent was a danger to the child, like a felon. Donald Trump, in addressing his worst policy, his least popular policy of his administration, denied it was his policy and said, in fact, he hadn't perpetrated the horror. He ended the horror. And he also said, in case anyone thought maybe his heart was in the right place, like he sees it as horrible, he also said that ending the horror had the effect of making border crossings as tempting as going to Disneyland. So which is it? You're so against cruelty that you stop it, or you're for this cruel procedure because to do otherwise would incentivize border crossing? I got an easy answer for you. He believes in the second one. He told us what he really thinks that he's pro-cruelty. Why? Because he's a bad president. He's also a weak, strong man. By the way, he was sitting next to Egypt's president, Abdullah Sisi, who must have been thinking, what a wussy. Today, President Trump, in one of his press gaggles next to a whirling helicopter, hope that doesn't cause cancer, tossed out uh, this observation. There were dirty cops. These were bad people. You look at McCabe and Comey, and you look at Lisa and Peter Strzok. These were bad people. And this was a, an attempted coup. This was an attempted takedown of a president. And we beat them. We beat them. So the Mueller report, when they talk about obstruction, what, we fight back. And you know why we fight back? Because I knew how illegal this whole thing was. It was a scam. And what I'm most interested in, excuse me, what I'm most interested in is getting started Hopefully the Attorney General, he mentioned it yesterday, he's doing a great job getting started on going back to the origins of exactly where this all started. Because this was an illegal witch hunt and everybody knew it and they knew it too and they got caught. And what they did was treason. What they did was terrible. What they did was against our constitution and everything we stand for. Treason. So FBI agents have committed a crime punishable by death. Also a coup. It was a coup. He believes there was a coup against America. So his way of protecting America from the coup is to say there's a coup, but do nothing to actually pursue the idea that there was a coup. Lisa Page, that's her name, by the way, Lisa Page. She's a working lawyer, member of the bar in Washington, D.C., but it was a coup, coup, coup. Now, those are serious. Those are possibly chilling statements that our bad president make. But I have to highlight a presidential statement That has become my duty. I I guess I've carved out this beat. It is the ongoing tracking of the Maisie Hirono Green New Deal anecdote. To recap, Maisie Hirono, senator from Hawaii, when asked about the Green New Deal, which has a goal of eliminating carbon-producing vehicles by 2030 or 2050, depending on how you read the particular non-binding resolution, she laughingly pointed out, I don't know, Hawaii's an island. That's going to be hard. I do need a plan to get there. That... In Trump's brain and on his lips, pause to say, ooh, (laughs) that became a story of perhaps a stupid senator. That's when he first mentioned the anecdote in El Paso on February 11th. This crazy senator from Hawaii 
They said, do you like it? Yes, I like it very much. Oh, really? How are we getting to Hawaii on a train? <laughs> she didn't think about that one, but she's thinking about it. She'll figure it out. And then he went to CPAC about a month later, and he changed the anecdote a bit to kind of working out how a train or an airplane would get her there. And then at the Michigan rally two weeks ago, she just became this very confused, stupid person. She said, but how would I get to my island? They said, we're working on some kind of a train system. (laughs) So she said, okay, well, then I am for it 100%. All right. Which brings us to about a week ago, he was before the Republican Congressional Committee, and here's how he's now talking about Senator Hirono and the Green New Deal. And, and then they asked her about the Green New Deal. I love it. They said, yeah, but you don't allow airplanes anymore, so you can't get to Hawaii. Oh, we have to work on something. So somebody jokingly said, we'll build a train to Hawaii, and she actually thought it was a decent idea. So now she supports it because she thinks they're going to build a train to Hawaii. But they really believe this stuff. And, you know, it's like, it's the craziest thing. They believe it. You think they're going to build a train Hawaii? Hey, you know who's in the room at the Republican Congressional Committee dinner? Republicans who are in Congress. They laughed and laughed about a colleague that they see every day, about an anecdote they know is untrue. If they are paying attention, an anecdote they knew was coming. It's very pathetic, I think. It's not true. It doesn't get to any bigger truth. It exposes Donald Trump, if anything. I mean, it's his case against the Green New Deal that Maisie Hirono believes that they could build a train to Hawaii. That's the problem with the Green New Deal. That's the critique. Is that even an effective lie? No, we're not going to build a train to Hawaii. But by all means, keep the idea that Maisie Hirono believes in trains to Hawaii. Keep that as part of your stump speech. Yeah, let us both agree that it is ridiculous and a disqualifier if you believe in outlandish ideas connected to the Green New Deal. Like, say, the belief that windmills cause cancer. Trains to Hawaii. It is gold. You might even say it is a comedic coup. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They were played by a tooth and an elevator. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She was ably portrayed by a bar of soap who thinks hand sanitizer is the devil. The gist. We were played by a Zamboni for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Always wanted to be a pace car for the Daytona 500. Guess what, guys? I have a trivia question. Please sign up for the gist newsletter. Slate.com slash gist news. Get a recap of all the week's episodes. The answer to this question, you ready? You might think concrete and cement are interchangeable. They are not. In which of these is sand an ingredient? Umpur Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.